Thanks, Pastor Greg. Good morning. I'm so glad to see all of you here today. It was a Sunday morning, maybe like this, a long, long time ago, that there were two young men in their 20s. It was someplace in a, in a, in a country called Moravia, which was located in the Czech Republic, that they went to church. Two young men, 20 years old, were in their 20s. And when they went to church for the very first time, they heard this story of an island in the West Indies called St. Thomas, where no one had ever heard of the gospel. No one had ever heard of Jesus Christ. And the island, St. Thomas, was run by an Englishman who was an avowed atheist. And he had under his ownership 3,000 slaves. He would bring them over from Africa, and he would have them there on his island. Then they would, he would sell them to people across North America. The Englishman vowed, he said, quote, no preacher, no clergyman will ever stay on this island. If he's ever shipwrecked, we'll keep him in separate quarters until he has to leave. But he's never going to talk to any of us about God. I'm through with all that nonsense, unquote. That was the Englishman who ran that island. And that morning, those two young men in their 20s heard about that story and the plight of the 3,000 slaves who lived on St. Thomas how they had been uprooted from their homes in Africa and taken, against their will, by the way, taken to St. Thomas to toil in the sugarcane fields under the blazing sun and to live without ever hearing of the gospel. They would live there without ever hearing. And when those two young men heard that story, it was more than they could bear. It was more than they could bear. You see, more than anything else, these two young men, John Leonard Dober and David Nietzscheman, they loved Jesus Christ. They loved him. In fact, between the two of them, their motto was this, our lamb has conquered, let us follow him. Our lamb has conquered, let us follow him. That was their motto. That's what they lived by. And so they came up with a plan when they heard of those 3,000 slaves living on St. Thomas. They came up with a plan. And against their family's wishes, they sold themselves into slavery to live on that island so that they could minister to and share the gospel with those 3,000 slaves. They sold themselves into slavery. So on a frigid day in December 1732, their loved ones gathered with them in the port city of Hamburg, Germany, to see them off, to send them off. This was not a short-term mission trip. This was not a short-term mission trip, for they sold themselves into a lifetime of slavery, never to return to their families again. And as you can only imagine, their families were absolutely distraught. One of them was married with children. They questioned why such an extreme sacrifice was necessary. They begged John and David, please don't go, please don't go, please reconsider. But they had to go. The call and the heart of God within them for, for these slaves was greater than the pull of home. And as the ship slipped away, the young men linked arms and they raised their hands and they raised their voices and cried out, may the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his suffering. May the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his suffering. And thus these two young men gave new meaning to the phrase, sold out for Jesus. They were sold out for Jesus. Let me ask you something. Are you sold out for Jesus? Are you sold out for him? 
Are you so sold out that you'd be willing to do what John and David did? Or how about this? Are you so sold out that you would allow your husband or your wife or your son or your daughter or your brother or your sister to go on a mission trip never to return again? If you're joining us for the first time, we've been in this series for the last month or so called Engage. And I want to explore this topic with you, being sold out to Jesus. I want to share this topic with you, and I want to explore this with you this morning. So if you brought your Bible, I want you to turn to the book of Matthew, chapter 10. Matthew, chapter 10, the first book in in the New Testament. And I want us to look at what Jesus had to say about being sold out to him. All right, but before we look at this passage, Matthew, chapter 10, bring your Bibles every week. Let me open up our time in a word of prayer. All right, so will you pray with me? Father, what a riveting, inspiring, crazy story that these two young, young men would literally sell themselves into slavery, into a lifetime of slavery, slavery, never to see their families again, simply for the purpose of sharing Christ with people they had never met. Oh, Father God, today as we unpack your scriptures, as we examine what Jesus had to say on this important topic. Father, I pray, I beg you, God, I pray that that every single person in this room today would be so moved by what they hear. They would be so moved by, by what you did, Jesus, that they would not leave here today the same people as they were when they came in. I pray, God, for every single person in this room. Perhaps there's some here who, who have yet to put their faith in you. Maybe, maybe there are some here today who will walk with you for a lifetime, but their faith is as lukewarm and as complacent as could be. I pray, God, that you would challenge us. I pray that you will change us. I pray that your power today would be demonstrated in this room and in the lives of every single person. So, God, I commit this morning to you and I commit myself to you and ask God, I want so much, Father, I want so much for people to be changed. And I know that I can't change them. And I ask that you will. I ask that you do that. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You might recall that this man, Martin Luther, was one of the leaders of the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century. Martin Luther. Martin Luther. He was a priest in the Catholic Church And he found himself at odds with the church over a number of different issues, significant theological issues, one of which was the the importance and the need to have faith and works to go to heaven. The Catholic Church believed and still believes that in order to go to heaven, you have to have faith plus works. In other words, you you have to believe plus you got to do a whole bunch of stuff to go to heaven. We actually talked about this some, some time ago. But Martin Luther believed what scriptures taught, that all you need is faith. There ought to be works, but he said all you need is faith to go to heaven. And so he was at odds with the Catholic Church, and so he decided to speak into the Catholic Church and try to get the Catholic Church to change. He says, I want them to see what the scriptures have to say. And so he decided to bring about the lead a movement called the Protestant Reformation. And the Catholic Church, he, he would speak to them about it, and they, they wouldn't budge. They wouldn't budge, and so he called for reform. He said, this is going to be tough. We're going to, I'm going to bring, I want to bring change to the Catholic Church. And he was willing to march into battle. 
He was willing to do whatever it took to help them to see the truth. And he knew the battle was going to be brutal. According to a story told by Pastor John MacArthur, Martin Luther had a friend. He was also a priest in the Catholic Church. And his friend believed in this cause. He believed that Martin Luther was right. And so he said, I want to help you. I want to help you because I believe in your cause. So they made an agreement. They came to an understanding. And the understanding was this. Martin Luther would be the man who would take the, take the fight right to the Catholic Church while his friend would retreat to a monastery to pray. He would do his work on his knees. Martin Luther would take the fight directly to the Catholic Church and he would do his fight with his feet and with his hands and with his mouth. And the fight began. The struggle began to change the Catholic Church and the struggle was fierce. And Martin Luther, King, Martin Luther, not King, Martin Luther reported back to his friend and said, this is tough. So his friend intensified his prayers for Martin Luther. Well, one night, his friend had a dream. He had a dream of the world. And the world was a field. It was a huge field. And he saw one solitary figure walking on that field on the world. And in that dream, it was apparent that that one solitary man faced an impossible task. And when he looked at the face of that one solitary figure in his dream, it was the face of his friend Martin Luther. As soon as he woke up, he immediately went to Martin Luther and he told him, I must leave my prayers for God has shown me that praying is not enough. I must give myself to the work. And so he left the monastery, joined Martin Luther, he joined his side, and, and together they fought to bring about reformation in the Catholic Church. Now I love that story because it illustrates what Matthew 10 is all about. This is what Matthew 10 is all about. Jesus is the one solitary figure who is in the world, working through the world to share the good news of his heavenly father. Jesus is that one solitary figure. He's all alone until you come to Matthew chapter 10. And then when we come to Matthew chapter 10, Jesus calls 12 men to fight alongside him. He calls 12 men to be his disciples. He called them apostles. He called 12 men to come alongside him and be his ambassadors. They would be the first missionaries. He commissioned 12 men to carry on his work. That's what Matthew 10 is all about. And the 12 are listed for us here in Matthew 10, verse 1 through 4. And for our purposes today, I'm not going to get into uh, who each of the 12 men were, except to say that they were very ordinary men. They were just very ordinary men. And it was on the backs of these dozen men that the whole of Christianity would depend. Would depend on them. Would depend on them to get the message out, to carry on the work of Christ after he was gone. Why did Christ choose 12? That's the first thing I thought of. Why did Christ choose 12? Why not 5? Why not 10? Why not 15? Why not 20? In fact, why not more? The more, the merrier. But he chose 12. I did some research on this, and here's what I found. According to R.C. Sproul, looking at their ministries, Jesus' selection of 12 was patterned after the 12 tribes of Israel. I didn't know that. His selection of 12 disciples was patterned after the, selection, after the 12 tribes of Israel. You might remember that Jacob was the grandson of Abraham, and Jacob had 12 sons. Well, these 12 sons went on, and, and out of their loins arose 12 tribes, and it formed the nation of Israel. In fact, here's a, here's a, uh, a map of Israel as it is divided up into the 12 tribes. So just as God formed his people from the 12 sons of Jacob, 12 tribes, Jesus 
formed his new people called the church from 12 disciples. So the number 12 is no accident. Now take a look at Matthew chapter 10. Let me just read it starting from the top, starting in verse 1. And it says this, And he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the 12 apostles are these. First Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. You can stop right there. So these are the 12, right? These are the 12. He chose 12 to go with him, to follow him, and to carry on the work in the field after he was done. But here's what I want us to really focus on in the next few verses, and, and that's where and to whom he went. So where and, the, and, and where did they go? Who did these, go, he, these 12 go to? Where was he sending them? So take a look at verse 5. And it says, These 12 Jesus sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. You can stop right there. So first, Jesus said, I want you to go to your own people, the Jews. I want you to go to the Jews. Don't go to the Gentiles. Don't go to the Samaritans. I want you to go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So in verse 6, circle lost sheep. We'll come back to that in just a moment. Go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Go to Jews. Don't go to Gentiles. Go to Jews. And then he said this. Take a look at verse 8. He said, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You receive without paying, give without pay. All right, so first, he said, heal the sick. Go to sick people. Jesus said, go to the disease. You can write that one down. We've got several points there. You can, you can fill this out. Jesus said, go to the disease. Go to sick people. Second, he said, raise the dead. Go where you, you will find death. Go to dead people. Jesus said, go to the dying. You can fill that in. Jesus said, go to the dying. Third, he said, cleanse lepers. Cleanse lepers. Now, I... If you didn't know, leprosy back then was, was the most dreaded disease of the day. It was feared by everyone because it was considered to be contagious. It was incurable. It would disfigure your face. It would disfigure your body. And people with leprosy were just, they were considered outcasts of society. They were shunned by society. They were the despised. They were so despised that later on, colonies and entire communities and encampments were established just for, for lepers. He said, You're le you have leprosy? That's where you go. But today, it's, it's, it's easily curable. And, it's not, and I guess it's not contagious. It's called Hansen's disease. And lepers were segregated from the rest of society. And Jesus said, go to the lepers. Go to the despised. Go to no one. Go to those that no one else would go to. Is what he was saying. And then fourth, he said, cast out demons. Go to the demon possessed. Go to unclean spirits. In other words, go to the dirty. Go to the spiritually dirty. Go to people who have unclean spirits. I don't know about you, but I have absolutely no desire to go to people who are demon possessed. I mean, I have no desire to do that. In fact, if anyone is, knows of someone who's demon possessed, Pastor Greg would be glad to go. <laughs> but I have no desire to do that. I remember years ago, I unknowingly walked into a New Age bookstore. It was in Westwood. I'll never forget it. And all it said outside was books. And, 
And of course, I love books and I love to read. So I, I saw the, I said, oh, there's a bookstore. So I said, I'm going in. So I, I went into the bookstore and the place was stocked with all these uh, books on Eastern mysticism and neo-paganism and channeling and psychic phenomena and a myriad of other topics. And, and the display tables, the display tables had astrology charts and tarot, card, tarot, tarot cards and crystals and all kinds of other uh, divination paraphernalia. And I knew the second I stepped in there, the second I walked in there, I knew, not with my eyes, not because of what I saw, but I knew because of what I sensed in my spirit, what was there. And that was demons. I sensed immediately, I sensed the presence of demons. And I can't describe it to you. I've felt it before, not very often. I recognized it immediately. And as, I, as quickly as I walked in, I was out of there. I said, that's up, 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 wrong place. You know, because I, I, I just sensed it. It was, it's, it's uncanny. I don't want to be where there are demons. I don't want to be where demons are. But Jesus said, go to where there are demons. Go to the dirty. You know, about a month ago, and again, I'm just so fascinated by what Jesus said to these disciples and where to go. About a month ago, I told you that as your senior pastor, what I care more about than anything else is your, is your relationship with God. I care about that more than anything else, is that you would have a, a close and growing relationship with Christ. Your salvation is what I care about most. Well, there's a second matter about with, which I, I deeply care about, and that's your safety and your well-being. I, I care deeply about your safety and your well-being, especially when you're here at, at, at church. You know, when we send our youth off, on uh, outings, for example. I'm always concerned about their safety, and I always speak to Pastor James about that. And I'm glad that he and his team share that concern. I said, hey, you know, when you guys are driving, you make sure everyone's got their seatbelts on. Don't be, don't, none of your advisors should be driving down the 405 at 80 miles an hour, and the fast, you know, it shouldn't be swerving in and out. And I said, when you, when you go to your retreat sites, and you make sure you keep an eye on all the kids. He said, oh, yeah, we know. We, we're keeping on all the kids. You know, junior high school kids, you got 80 junior high school kids that are running around like crazy, right? So we take a bunch of advisors with us to make sure that everyone's keeping track of everyone else. I care about their safety. Um, I care about the safety of our children. Here, we got hundreds of children at our church, and that's why we make sure that anyone who ever volunteers to work in any of our, our, our ministries with young people, whether it's our junior high or high school ministry, whether it's kids' crew, or whether it's infant toddler ministry, it's whether it's the brand new child care ministry that we just started up, that everybody undergoes a criminal background check. You are not allowed to work with children unless you, and that includes our staff. Every one of us has undergone a criminal background check, which we have to pay for. And then when we have large events like Harvest Fest, I, I'm always concerned. This last year, I think we were, was attended by over almost 400 kids. And so every, every year we, when we have an event like that, or even if it's VBS, we make sure we have extra security because we just got to make sure that our kids are safe, especially in this day and age, even at church. And I care about the safety of, of everyone we send out on mission teams. I always care. That's why I was so concerned about my wife and, and Annie when they went to Guinea and Uganda. I'm always concerned about that. So, yeah, it keeps me awake at night, actually. I truly believe that it's the responsibility of the shepherd to care for his people and to be responsible for their safety or be concerned for their safety. And that's why what Jesus said next is, is so strange. What he said next was so odd. It seemed so out of character with him. Here's what he said, because, and, and, it's, and the reason is, he is the good shepherd. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. So take a look at what he had to say starting in verse 16. 
He said, behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. And stop there. You get this? I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. I am sending you to a pack of wolves. Jesus, the good shepherd, the one who is supposed to be concerned about our safety, says, I am sending you out like a bunch of sheep into danger. And you know what wolves do? You're not speaking literally of wolves here, speaking metaphorically of wolves. Uh, It's just an illustration. Uh, They represent danger. You know, you know what wolves do. They attack and they can kill. I remember years ago when I was a college student at Pepperdine, I was attacked by a German shepherd. And I'll never forget, it was terrifying. It wasn't fun. I had to go to urgent care, rip my legs apart. In this, in this passage, Jesus again says, I am sending you, he's, Jesus didn't say, I am sending you to a place where it's safe. He didn't say that. He didn't say, I want you to be a missionary at Disneyland. Go to Disneyland. Be a, I'm sending you to people who are nice. I'm sending you to people who are good. And they're going to love you for being there. He didn't say that. He said, I'm sending you to danger. So write that one down. Jesus said, go to danger. He said, go to danger. And he said to go to danger and go to people who were diseased and dying and despised. Because there were people who, who were in great need. They were were just people who were in great need. And you know what they needed more than anything else? They needed him. They needed Jesus because they were spiritually lost. I had you circle that in verse 6. He was sending them to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. The word lost in the Greek here is a very foreboding word. It, it It doesn't mean lost as in I lost my keys. This word lost here means to to go astray or to wander. In other words, the, G- the Jews had lost their way with God. They had wandered away from God. They lost their way because of sin. You see, by, by, by his very nature, God is a holy God. God is a perfect God. He is without sin. He has zero imperfections. And because God is a holy God, the scriptures tell us that he can't even look upon sin. Habakkuk 1.13 says, your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. And what happened? Man sinned. He sinned. Man and woman, Adam and Eve, sinned right out of the gate. In the Garden of Eden, they sinned. Rather than obey God, they disobeyed God. They sinned against Him. And what does it mean to sin? What is that exactly? The biblical definition of sin is to miss the mark. It means to miss the mark. And I like what Pastor Erwin Lutzer's definition of sin is. I'll put it up here for you. He said, sin is any action, attitude, or thought which is contrary to the character and command of God. Get that? It is, it is any action, it is any attitude, it is, it is any thought that is contrary to the character and the command of God. Think about that. It is any action, it is any attitude, it is any thought that is contrary to the character and command of God. He's right. 
And this, his definition covers it all and it covers us all. It covers us all. Because who hasn't ever acted or behaved in a manner that was contrary to the character and the command of God? Who hasn't? We all have. Who hasn't, who hasn't had an attitude at some point that is contrary to the character and the command of God? Who hasn't? We all have. Who hasn't had a thought that is contrary to the character and the command of God? We all have. We all have. Sin covers us all. We have all sinned, the Bible says. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 1 Kings 8.46 says, for there is no one, there is no one who does not sin. It's kind of like these containers here right and this this is man and the reason why it's clear is because when man first was created he was perfect Adam and Eve were perfect they they were sinless in the garden and then sin entered in and sin is this dirty water right and sin entered in man disobeyed God and sin entered in and it and it contaminated man. And that's us today. This is us. We are sinners. You can write that one down. We are all sinners. And it is our biggest dilemma. Sin is our biggest dilemma. Sin is, behind, is, the, is, is the culprit behind every war. It is the culprit behind every murder, every act of hate, every act of greed, every addiction. Every act of drunkenness, every power grab, every conflict, every divorce, every gossip, every theft, every lie, every lustful thought, every sexual misconduct, every insult, every dig, every cutting remark, every profane word, every act of idolatry, every act of covetousness. I want this. I want that. All of it and more emanates from sin. The whole world is a prisoner to sin and the repercussions of sin on the human soul are absolutely staggering. They're just staggering. Sin just destroys and rots the soul. First, sin separates man from God. It separates man from God. Isaiah 59, 2, the next verse says, but your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. Sin just drives a wedge between us and God and separates us. Separates you and me from God. Second, if it is not addressed, if the issue of sin is not addressed, it will separate man and God forever. Forever. Man will be separated from God for all eternity. Romans 6.23, Paul said, for the wages of sin is death. For the wages of sin is death. Circle that word wages. And circle that word death. For the word wages, this is the Greek word opsonion. And, it, and you don't need to remember that, but what I want you to remember is that this word wages has been used to refer to a soldier's pay. But here it is used figuratively to refer to a man's eternal compensation. In other words, one day every man will be compensated for his sin. Every one of us will be paid for our sin. We will all stand, every one of us 
whether you believe in God or whether you don't believe in God, whether you're a Buddhist or a Muslim or an atheist or an agnostic, it doesn't matter what you believe, every one of us one day will stand before Almighty God, a holy Almighty God, and we will have to give an account of our lives to Him. It's clear, that's what the Bible says. Romans 14, 12 says, so then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Everyone will give an account of himself to God. And it is then that we will be compensated for our sin. And what you may have gotten away with in this life, you will not get away with when you appear before God. There may be, a, may, there may be things that you've done that nobody else knows about except you and God. And one day you will have to give an account of your life to God. See, the Bible says that we will each reap what we sow. You can take a look at the next verse, Galatians 6, 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. You think you're fooling him. You're not. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. That's just how things work. Everything works on the principle of reaping and sowing, reaping and sowing. Even in this life, we will reap what we sow. You drive too fast, you will reap what you sow. You cheat on the test, you will reap what you smoke. You smoke cigarettes, you will reap what you sow. Guys, if you're married and you didn't get something, on, uh, something for your honey on Valentine's Day, you're probably reaping what you, you sowed today. You're probably reaping today what you sowed. Right? The Bible says that we will reap what we sow. And when it comes to sin, we will reap what we sow. And according to Romans 6, 23, we will reap death. For the wages of sin is death. We will reap death, not physical death. Everyone dies, but this is not referred to physical death. This refers to spiritual death. Spiritual death for the wages of sin is death. And this death refers to the fact that we will be separated from God forever and ever and ever. You can write that one down. God will separate, sin will separate me from God forever and ever and ever. And I would remind you that forever isn't 100 years. Forever isn't a thousand years. Forever isn't a million years. Forever isn't a trillion years. Forever is forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. And we will be separated from God forever in a place, the Bible says, in a place called hell. And that's what the lost sheep of Israel were up against. That's where they were headed. They faced eternal doom because of their sin and they were separated from God and it was not okay for God. Therefore, Jesus dispatched his disciples to them because what they needed more than anything else, they needed him. They needed him. Why him, you ask? Why him? Well, first, because Jesus was God's perfect and holy son. He came to earth as a man. He was almighty God clothed in human flesh. He was born to a human mother named Mary. Mary had never had sexual relations with anyone. And then she became pregnant. How? Through the, through the Holy Spirit. Luke 1.35 says, And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will, will be called Holy, the Son of God. She was impregnated by the Holy Spirit. Almighty God was the father of this baby. And she did give birth to a son, and, and she named him Jesus. See, Jesus was, was God. He was almighty God, and, and because he was God, he lived a perfect and sinless life. 1 Peter 2.22 says he committed no sin. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. At the same time, he was fully man. He was completely man, he understood. And as a man, he understood all the weaknesses and all the hardships of being a man. Most importantly, the reason why God gave us his son was for the purpose of addressing our sin problem. 
1 John 3 says, but you, you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins. He came to address the sin problem. He came to take away our sins. He was born to take away our sins. You might be familiar with the story of Jamal Khashoggi. He was a Saudi Arabian dissident who was a columnist for the Washington Post. He fled Saudi Arabia in September 2017, went into self-imposed exile on October the 2nd, 2018. He walked into the Saudi Arabian consulate in Istanbul, Turkey, and never came out. This is about four months ago. Walked in, never came out. Everyone wanted to know what happened to him. Well, this here's a photo of him going into the, into the consulate. Everyone wanted to know what happened to him. How come he didn't come out? What happened to him? Where is he? His family reported him missing. Where is he? Never came out. 18 days later, Saudi officials finally admitted that he was killed inside the consulate by government agents. Saudi dissident killed by government agents. In November, after a thorough investigation, the CIA concluded that this man right here, Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, ordered Khashoggi's murder. I believe that the Crown Prince is next in line to be the king, I believe. But this, is, this man, it was, it was traced to him. He gave the order to kill Khashoggi. And when that report was, was issued by the CIA, there was a worldwide outcry. We want justice. We want justice. They demanded, they demanded justice, and the Saudi government gave the world justice. You know what they did? They charged 11 men. They charged 11 women with the murder of Khashoggi, and they went on trial last month. In all likelihood, they will be convicted and beheaded, and the crown prince will go free. One of the men who was charged with the journalist's murder complained that he and the others had been made a scapegoat. Then made a scapegoat, Salman's scapegoat. And all the blame for the murder of this journalist, all of it was placed on them. It's all on them. And they're the ones who are going to have to pay the price for Khashoggi's murder while he goes free. In one of the most consequential passages in the Old Testament, the prophet Isaiah wrote this. Take a look at Isaiah 53, verse 5 and 6. And here's the reason, by the way, as I read this, Here's the reason why I can't understand why a Jewish person would not believe in Jesus because it's there in their, old, in their Old Testament, in the Torah. Here it is. And it says, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. First, this tells us that the sins of the world, the sins of the world were laid on Jesus. This is all about, this passage is all about Jesus. It's a prophecy of Jesus. All the, the, the sins of the world, all the sins of the world, for every man, woman, and child that has ever lived has been laid on him. The apostle Paul put it this way in 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. For our sake he made Christ to be sin and he knew no sin, but he made him to be sin. He was perfect. He was sinless, but he made him to, to be sin because of us. And in 1 Peter 2, 24, Peter wrote, and he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. In other words, in every sense of the word, Jesus became our scapegoat when all the sins of the world, your sins and my sins, all of it was placed on him. 
It's all, it's all put on him. That means your sins and my sins, every sinful act we have ever committed, every bad attitude we have ever had, every evil thought we have ever had, your lust, my lust, your greed, my greed, your pride, my pride, your selfishness, my selfishness, your lies and my lies, all of it was placed on him. And then verse 5 says, he was crushed for these sins. He was crushed. He was pierced for these sins. He was crushed for these sins. He took our punishment for these sins. He paid the price for our sins. He died for our sins. He died. Christ died for your sins. Christ died for my sins. You know, when Jesus died, the Jewish high priest believed that his crucifixion was a fitting execution for what he was charged with and found guilty of, and that's blasphemy. They brought him before trial and said, you're, you're a blasphemer because you're claiming to be the son of God. Well, he was the son of God. And, but the Jewish high priest believed that he was, they found him guilty. And so they crucified him. They, they, they thought that was a, a fitting, just punishment for his conviction of blasphemy. But in God's economy... Jesus didn't die because he was a blasphemer. Jesus died in God's economy. Jesus died to pay the price for our sins. He died to pay the price for your sins. For the wages of sin is death. Someone had to die. So he died. You can write that one down. Jesus died for me. Why would he do that? Why would he do that? Why, why would he die for me? That one always boggles my mind. But it's because he loved us. He loved you. Romans 5.8, but God shows his love. He demonstrates his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Do you know that God loves you? God loves every one of you in this room. God loves every one of you in the lobby. God loves every one of the kids. He, he loves everyone in this world. He sent his son to die on a cross for everyone in this world. You know, the good, the good news, the good story is that Jesus' death was, is not the end of the story because three days later he was raised from the dead. He was raised from the dead. In his final letter to the church at, Cor at, at Corinth, or in his letter to the church at Corinth, the, the apostle Paul said this. He said, this is the gospel. This is the gospel, verse 3, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Here's the gospel, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture, scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. This is the gospel. He was raised from the dead. He, he, he died on a cross for our sins and he was raised from the dead. And it was proof, proof positive. His resurrection was proof positive that he was who he said he was, that he was almighty God, the son of God. And now simply on the basis of faith, simply on the basis of your faith and my faith, we can be reconciled to God. All of us who have wandered away from him, all of us who have sinned against him, and that's everyone, we can have a relationship with God. And you can be forgiven of all your sins. Simply on the basis of faith, faith Acts 16.31 says, and they said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. 
simply on the basis of faith. One day, and that means if you believe what Jesus did for you, that he died on the cross for you and was raised from the dead, if you believe that, then one day when you stand before God to give an account of your lives to him, when you come before God, God will declare you at that moment because of your faith, he will declare you innocent. And he will declare you righteous before him. And only the righteous enter the kingdom of heaven. He will declare you righteous, not because you're righteous. He will declare you righteous, not because of what you've done, because you can't do enough to be righteous. He will declare you righteous because of what Jesus did and because you put your faith and trust in him. It's kind of like this final container. Here's Jesus, here's man. And when you receive him into your heart, when you ask him to come into your heart, he will wash away your sins. It'll all be gone. Now we'll continue to sin. But from God's perspective, you are as white as snow. And that's why we get to go to heaven. That's why we can enter into the kingdom of heaven. Because of what Christ did for us. You'll be made new in his eyes. Acts 16, 31. And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Here's a question for you. Do you believe? Do you believe? Will you believe? I can't believe the number of people I've met who come to our church who, who have told me, yeah, I, I believe in God, but it's this Jesus thing I, I'm not quite sure about. Believe in Jesus. You can't just believe in God. You gotta believe that Jesus was God's son, that God sent him to planet Earth just for you to die on a cross to pay the penalty for your sins. And if you believe in him, your sins will be forgiven and you'll receive the gift of eternal life. So, do you know what happened to the 12 disciples? You ever, ever wonder whatever happened to the 12 disciples? Well, we don't know for sure because it's not recorded for, recorded for us in scripture except for two we know what happened to at least two because it is, it, scriptures do tell us what, what happened to them. Uh, we know Judas, who betrayed Jesus, committed suicide. And then James, the son of Zebedee, he was, he was beheaded by King Herod. That's in scripture. But we don't know about the other 10 for sure. But here's what we think happened to them according to legend and some historians. Legend has it that Peter, the apostle Peter, was crucified by Nero during that great persecution and he was crucified upside down because Peter didn't feel worthy to be crucified right side up as his Lord was crucified. So legend has it that he was crucified upside down for his faith. Legend has it that Thomas went to India where he was, ki where he was killed and pierced by the spears of four soldiers. It is said that Philip had a powerful ministry in Carthage in northern Africa, and then he went to Asia Minor, which is where Turkey is today, and he converted the wife of the Roman proconsul, and in retaliation for converting his wife, Philip was arrested and he died a cruel death. Matthew, the tax collector, it is said, ministered in Persia and Ethiopia, and legend has it that he was stabbed to death for his faith, stabbed to death in Ethiopia. Bartholomew went on to preach in Armenia. According to legend, he was flayed to death by a whip. I mean, they just kept whipping him until his skin just came off and he died. It is believed that Andrew was beaten by seven soldiers and then he was crucified on an X-shaped cross. 
This was in Greece. According to a Latin tradition, John, the apostle John, was boiled in a huge basin of oil but miraculously survived. And then he was banished to the island of Patmos where he wrote the book of Revelation. Matthias, who replaced Judas Iscariot as the 12th disciple after he committed suicide, was reportedly stoned and then beheaded. And according to Jewish historian Josephus, James, the son of Alphaeus, was stoned and then clubbed to death. And then legend has it that Simon the Zealot took the gospel to Persia, which is modern-day Iran, and he was killed after he refused to sacrifice, make a sacrifice to their sun god. The point is that the disciples, from what we can tell, went on to do exactly what Jesus asked them to do. They went to the disease. They went to the dying. They went to the despised. And they went to dangerous places. They were sheep among wolves. They went to dangerous places. Not simply because Jesus commanded them to. But because of what Jesus did for them. Jesus changed their lives. Jesus forgave them of their sins. And so they went. And think about this one. Here we are. Roughly 2,000 years later. And had they not gone, we wouldn't be here. Had they not gone to carry on the work of Christ, we would not be here. And if you weren't here, if you weren't a Christ follower, where do you think you'd be? I know where I'd be. I'd be so messed up, I probably would be dead. I would be so messed up, I would be so lost, living for myself, and it wouldn't even be funny. I thank God that those 12 men were sold out for Jesus. And as for John and David, who sold themselves into a lifetime of slavery, they too went to the diseased and the dying, and the despised, and into danger because of what Jesus did for them. First, because of what Jesus did for them. He changed their lives. He forgave them of their sins. In fact, they actually said the sacrifice he made is nothing. I mean, the sacrifice we're going to make is nothing compared to the sacrifice he made. Second, they went because they knew that without Jesus, those 3,000 slaves didn't have a chance. They didn't have a chance. They would be lost forever and ever and ever. And that was not okay with them. It was not okay with Jesus. So again, I would ask you, are you sold out? Are you sold out for Jesus? Are you willing to go to the diseased and the dying and the despised and even into danger because of what Christ did for you? So often our love for Jesus is dictated by our convenience. Here in 2019 in comfortable America, so often our relationship with God is determined by comfort and by safety. I used to think that we shouldn't send our church, and we never have. Well, we've sent a couple people out, but they kind of went out on their own. I used to think that we should never send mission trips, short-term mission trips to Mexico. Because the State Department has issued these reports saying, don't go to Mexico right now. It's very dangerous down there. 
There's a lot of drug trafficking down there. Nothing to do with the immigration thing. But there's, it's very dangerous down there. And the government is going, so don't go down there. So I've always thought we shouldn't send, I've told people, we're not going to send young people down to Mexico because it's too dangerous. I, I've, all, I've never thought that we should send anyone, send any missionaries to that 1040 window area to Muslim countries where people almost, Christians are almost certainly persecuted and they can disappear. But Jesus wasn't concerned about those things. He said, I want you to go to those places because the message is so important. And without, without faith, those people will be lost forever. And I'm beginning to think that, he's, that we ought to send people there. We ought to send people to Mexico. We ought to send mission teams there. We ought to send mission teams to, to Muslim countries if someone's willing to go. Because the stakes are so high. And if you've been touched by the love of God... If your sins have been forgiven, if you know that you're going to heaven today because of what Christ did for you, then how can we not be sold out to him? I hope that you will be sold out to him and you will say to him, I will go where you want me to go. And not everybody's supposed to go. But if your attitude is that, that will mean everything. I will do whatever you want me to do. Maybe it's, I will do whatever you want me to do. Great. Get baptized. Because you've never been baptized. I will do whatever you want me to do. I'm willing to send, but I, but I won't let my kids go on a mission trip because it's too dangerous. Be willing to do whatever God wants you to do. Be sold out for him. Let's close our time in prayer. I, I want to make our prayer time a commitment time. You have your heads bowed and your eyes closed. And I want you to say whatever it is that you need to say to him as we, as we finish off our time today. Maybe you live a comfortable, convenient Christianity and it's all about you. As long as he fits into your schedule and into your lifestyle, you're good with it. But if he's going to disrupt it, forget it. If that's you, ask him to forgive you. Tell him that you're willing to do whatever he wants you to do. Go wherever he wants you to go. Give up whatever sin you need to give up. Maybe it's time to say, I, I will go to the waters of baptism. You died for me, Jesus. I will go to the waters of baptism for you. I will let my son or daughter go on that mission trip that they've been wanting me to go on, that they've been wanting to go on. Maybe you're here today and you're one of those folks. You believe in God, but you don't believe in Jesus. One day you will stand before Almighty God 
and you will reap what you sow. And he said, I sent you my son. You came to church. You heard about my son and you did not receive him. You will reap what you sow. Don't let that happen. You're not here by accident today. You're here by God's sovereign design. Believe in Jesus. If you want to believe in Jesus, in fact, I want to ask you right now, raise your hand. Say, I believe in Jesus. I believe in Jesus. Yes, thank you. Many hands. God, we are nothing. We are sinners. We've got so much junk and dirt floating around our hearts and our minds. It's absolutely sickening. And yet because you loved us, you sent your son, the Holy One of God, the Holy Lamb of God, to planet Earth, to die on a cross for our sins. That if we put our faith and trust in Him, we will be declared righteous and we will be forgiven and we will live for you forever. God, may that be the reason why everyone in this room says today, I will be sold out for you. I will be sold out for you, Jesus. I will go where you want me to go. I will go to the diseased. I will go to the sick. I will go to the dying. I will go to the despised. I will go to the dirty. I will go where there is danger. Because the news that I bear is so good. It is so powerful. And without without Jesus, someone will be lost forever. So God, do a work in us. Do a work in us, God. That we'd be sold out for you. Thank you, God, for what you did for us. Thank you for Jesus. We love you so much. And we pray this in your name.